Well, hey there. Welcome. I'm CJ, the creator and host of the Inspired Way podcast. And I want to take a quick minute to thank you very much for being here, whether this is your first episode or if you've been with us the entire time. It really means a lot to me to be able to share these episodes with you. And we are winding down on season number two. So if you are watching or listening to this after June 28th, 2022, I encourage you to use this downtime to go back and catch up on some of the past episodes. I am so grateful for so many amazing, amazing guests I've had the opportunity to interview and record so many inspiring episodes and inspiring stories. So I hope you will go back and listen to some of those as well as the leadership and life lessons that I've been able to share over the past year and a half. Thank you for being here. So today I'm interviewing Victoria Curie and Victoria has just an incredible story. She's a domestic abuse survivor and she calls herself a mother of a special needs miracle child, but she really is a bit of a miracle herself. And even if you don't know anyone who's ever been involved with domestic abuse, I encourage you to listen because it really, first of all, the statistics show that you and I probably do know someone, they just don't talk about it. But it really is an inspiring story. She's had more than 16 years of educating herself and countless others within the special needs community. And now she has also turned her attention toward helping educate women who are surviving domestic abuse. Victoria has made it her mission to bring light to those who've known or are experiencing true darkness. She highlights some great tips and takeaways in this episode, but more than anything, I hope you will listen and be inspired by her faith, her persistence, and how she is now not just surviving, but thriving by helping others. Well, hello, welcome back, everyone. As you heard, I'm here today with Victoria, and I'm so excited about this interview. Victoria, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. So to start us off, do you have any little tidbit or fun fact you'd like to share that isn't going to come out as part of your story probably today? I would have to say that I have totally fall in love with the fact that we are beginning the phase of breeding and raising golden retrievers to help with supporting children and domestic violence. So they're just so much fun. They're beautiful animals. They're sweet. I'm just addicted to it. I love I it. love golden retrievers. That's so cool. So take us back. Let's get into this journey that you've been on. Take us back to where you were at, I guess, or the situation leading up to having your daughter early and all of the challenges around the domestic violence you were in and where you guys landed. I survived domestic violence uh, during the course of my marriage. The abuse started after 
I had become pregnant. It escalated as time went on. And I made a deal with the devil. I admit my wrongdoings, if you will. I told him as long as he didn't hit my stomach, I wouldn't fight back because there's no fighting and winning against somebody who wakes you up in the middle of the night, punching you in the face, telling you to go get them some water, which is what I was experiencing. So he was incredibly controlling. And I felt the best way I can, or best analogy I could give you is I felt like an asthmatic trapped in a confined space of smokers. Because that's that's what you feel like you can't breathe. You can't, you know, survive. You feel like you're not going to make it. I was put in the hospital on numerous occasions. I went into preterm labor with my miracle. We were told we had a 2% chance of coming out of the hospital. We both coded during the delivery. And when I came through in the recovery, I kept saying, I want to see her. Where is she? And they literally just had the saddest looks on their face. and. I wanted to know, I knew she'd be little. And they told me that I needed to literally just turn around. And I saw this group of people who I now call angels, literally running her down the hallway in a NICU. I mean, in an incubator, sorry, in an incubator. It seemed like the longest period of my life when I I just started hearing a helicopter on the hospital roof and they were taking my daughter to another facility and I was not able to join her. And so I wanted to go AMA. The doctor said I wouldn't make it out of the parking lot. My blood clot would kill me that I got from being beaten. There was no way my heart rate wasn't stable enough because I went into heart failure. So once I became stable enough, if you will, they released me under the understanding um, that I would be on blood thinners. I was in blood thinners, I was on blood thinners in the hospital, but they can't put you on Coumadin when you're pregnant. So I was on Coumadin once I had her, once I already given birth to her, I was in a wheelchair and I stayed beside her the entire time at the hospital, except the unit closed two hours out of a 24 hour period for shift change. And then when I was trying to get my stuff, if you will, together, if you don't have escape plan ready to go, that's why a lot of women go back. It's for that instability. They feel like they have nowhere to go. They don't have the means to go. They don't deserve to be anywhere else. It's like if you hear something every single day, you begin to believe it. It becomes your your way of life. And I was told every day that I was unattractive and ugly and nobody would want me. I'm all scarred up. And people felt sorry for him for having to be with me. Now, the scars were from him, correct? Yes, ma'am. We're all scarred up. Yeah. Yeah. So... Dozens and dozens of surgeries, 12 stabbings, and my beautiful daughter. And here we are today. Oh, my goodness. So, obviously, you both survived. How long before your daughter was out of the hospital? And what happened when she got out? She, I was not expecting her to be released as quickly. And I say that and people say, but it was three months. Yes, but during that period, she had already had eight surgeries. She had her first four surgeries before she was a week old. So she was given, she was coding every single day. No parent can ever imagine that. I would never wish that on anyone to sit there and watch their daughter or son code every day. The chaplain and I became very close. They, at one point, they said, we're going to call it. And I just started screaming, no, no. And there was a resident who wouldn't quit. He wouldn't give up. And by the grace of God, she came back. 
And so once this continued, they ended up telling me we needed to put a tracheostomy in, which is a tube in the neck to help breathe, to guarantee airway. Well, she had also been having seizures, like 20 plus seizures a day. So she had frontal brain lobe damage, the, the front lobe, the brain was damaged. So it was three months and they said, you can go home. And I was like, no, 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 no. And it wasn't because I wasn't trained. It was because I wasn't out of that environment yet. Yeah. And we went home and it's not a home. And she had apnea belts on, which is an alarm notification. She wore around her chest to monitor her heart rate. She had a pulse ox probe on that monitors your oxygenation and your pulse, obviously. And I went to go clean her feeding bag because she was fed through a feeding tube at that point. And I was 10 feet away at most. And like nothing, he just said, like, I'm talking to you that she coded. She's blue. Like it was nothing. And I ran Your husband over. told you she was blue all of a yes. sudden. I don't even, I honestly, CJ, I don't even remember if I turned the water off. I don't remember anything at that point except running to her. I grabbed the cell phone. I put it to my ear called 911 and I all of a sudden heard this noise and he was standing over me with a gun to my head and I am working on my daughter trying to get her back and 911 operator is on the line and I'm sure that she misconstrued my utter fear because I kept trying to convey to her I needed the police you know and I told her I said I need you to send me the police. I need you to send me fire and rescue. I need an ambulance. And I just kept saying, why are you standing over me? You're not doing anything. Why are you standing over me? You're not doing anything. And I kept trying to convey the message. So hopefully she would get it, but it didn't matter. She did bring them. She did get the police to come. I said to him, you need to go unlock the door. Can you at least go open the door? Can you at least open the door? The operator was like, well, I'm going to walk you through Sorry, so hard. I'm going to walk you through, you know, doing the CPR. And I said, well, you don't do CPR the same on a trait child than you would. And I just didn't want her to hang up. And I knew that she was literally my lifeline more than she knew. So the police, you could see him coming in and immediately he just threw the gun under the sofa and just plopped down, started playing his video games like it was nothing. And I ran into the ambulance with her. They had her and I ran with her, got her emergency bag, went to the hospital and it was hours later he showed up. And I I just couldn't have even told you he was there at first because I was just focused on her. Nothing else mattered. I was just totally focused on her and what was going on. And they couldn't figure out what it was. There was no occlusion in the trach, which meant like, say for instance, like when you and I cough any phlegm, I don't mean to be gross, but that would occlude, that would occlude yeah. the trach. But there was nothing. And so when he came in and eventually he leaned over me and told me that he put his finger over it until she stopped breathing. And that's when he put the gun to my head because I was devoting all my attention to her, all of my time to her. And that did not work for him. So if I no longer had her in the picture, I would be doing what I'm supposed to do, which was serve him. And that was it. That, that was it. Sorry. Wow. So you, at that point, had some kind of a safe escape route planned or you put one together quickly after that to escape? I had already, I had already started um, 
to get stuff together because I tried once before and he showed me what he would do if I tried and I did not have one in place completely. It wasn't a sound. This is what I'm doing to get out. He shot and killed our dog to show me what he would do to me if I got out. And so that really puts you in a perspective of I'm in a fight or flight situation at this point. And so I started to get evidence together. I kept going to his supervisors and telling them that this was happening and they just turned their eye away. Like it was just like, okay, well, what did you do to make him mad? And why didn't you just do what he wanted? And, you know, one thing that nobody understands and it's so frustrating is that you could do every single tiny thing he demands you to do. Everything to a T, perfect. And if somebody cuts him off on the way home, somebody, you know, says something smart to him at work, somebody, you know, says something to him on a cell phone on the way, whatever it is, anything else that puts him in a bad mood, we're going to get it. We're going to be the brunt of it. It doesn't matter. And people don't realize that who've never been in our situation. So I just started gathering evidence little by little. He would follow me to my office to make sure I was going to work. I had to call him from my office so he could see caller ID that I was actually in my office. He would make spot checks to make sure I had dated the real love of my life before I met him. And they had met each other. They hated each other. And he was an officer. And he made sure I was nowhere, anywhere near where he patrolled. I couldn't go anywhere. If I went to the grocery store, I had to show him a receipt. I had to show him proof of everywhere I went. It was the most controlling situation. You just don't, and people don't understand how horrible it is. So now I understand that I'm not sure how long, but recently you've started doing more speaking and advocacy for people in domestic violence situations. Is that right? I have. I have. Yes. Yes. So what does that entail or what do you want? I mean, well, let me back up for a minute. There may not be, I I don't know, a lot of women listening, that there may not be many who have been in this kind of situation. I hope that's the case. Me too. But what can you say? Because it seems like in our conversation before I hit record that this is more prevalent than the news, for instance, might have us believe. It is. Uh, and if that's the case, many, many of us probably know someone in a situation, hopefully not as bad as yours was with your, your, not and your daughter's life in jeopardy, but it sounds pretty prevalent. So what is the occurrence like or the statistics like? And what should we know that we don't know if we're not in a situation like this? I can't thank you enough for asking that question. I wish that more people would ask that. It's kind of like on the news, if it bleeds, it leads. But these statistical numbers don't come out. They, in the military or law enforcement aspect, the numbers are one in three. and that's mind-boggling to me because if it's one in three that report it, how many don't? How many are not reporting it? In the civilian sector, it's one in four women. So if you put you and I and our two daughters in the room, one of four of us, that would be me, drew that short stick. The And even men, it's one in seven. It's, it's one in seven men. 
And oh it, the numbers have gotten bigger since COVID. And I really, CJ, have a huge problem with the fact that our government really is not helping us in regards to the fact that there's all these empty federal buildings places. There's, you know, funding and things of that nature. Why can't we make that a shelter? Why can't we make those places shelters for women and children? Why can't we do something to help these people? They're individuals. They have a right to live. They have the right to survive and thrive. Why can't we help? And what's even worse is that in anyone who's ever, I have to say, one hit, one slap, one kick, one punch is one too many. You never, ever put your hands ever on anyone, male or female. When I talk, I actually really encourage that family members or individuals that aren't supportive come with the victims because I ask questions that are kind of leading so that they ask certain questions like, well, she chose to stay and I change their minds before they leave. Like there's a way to address it where they can understand. And then I teach like the red flags of what you should be on the lookout for and things of that nature. Or, you know, this would never have happened to me or, you know, and I go in and discuss this in length and I turn that around so that when they leave, they have more of a nurturing support when they leave together, which is crucial. We need that because what people don't get is I was interrogated like I was a mass murderer. I was interrogated constantly, every act. Who saw him break your nose? Who saw him break your jaw? Well, any woman who's ever been abused will tell you we're not really caring who's around us at that point. You know, we're trying to survive. We're in a fight or flight. And I couldn't have told you. I couldn't have said, well, this one was at my one o'clock and this was at my four o'clock. I couldn't have told you that. Yeah. And to me, if I could, then there's something wrong with me. You know, oh, wait, let me see who's here. Okay, go ahead. You, you, you don't do that. That's the realist of it. You don't do it. So it's trying to bring more of that awareness to the forefront because we hold the victims to blame and we really overlook the abusers. And that is not okay. It's not okay. Yeah, that's incredible. So what do you do besides public speaking to try and help women that are in a situation that maybe they're scared to get out of or don't know how to get out of or maybe don't think they're, you know, worthy of possible. It. Yeah. Or worthy or yeah. It would honestly depend on where they are in their journey. I first want them to know how incredibly proud I am for being at the step that they are because to even come forth and say, this is where I am, is a huge kudos to them because they're admitting even subconsciously that they're worth fighting for. And even though everybody else is cutting them down at every turn, they need to hear the positivity in their light. And so I remind them that even in the most pitch black night, the tiniest flickering light can light up their path. And that is still within them. Mm -hmm. And he can't take that away unless they allow it. They still hold that power and that they have survived 100% of their worst days. No matter what has been thrown at them, they have survived. And I've never compared what I've endured to what someone else has endured because it's not a competition. It's support. We are here as one group empowering each other and they are worth fighting for. And I've had so many people, CJ, who will say, well, maybe it's the best I'm ever going to get. He says, I'm never going to get anything better than that. I'm never, you know, I'm not worth it. I'm, I just, I'm a horrible person. I don't believe in myself anymore. You know, I have no friends anymore. And I would ask the question, do you have children? Well, yeah. Okay. Do you have a daughter or a son? I have both. Well, let me ask you a question. 
would you tolerate a man doing this to your daughter? Would you be okay if she, if she had this going on? Because what you're teaching her is that it's okay for a man to do this to their mother. So if you're at a point at the moment where you're not so believing in yourself, leaving your kid. And if you have a son, do you, how do you feel knowing that this is the context of what he's learning is okay of how to treat a woman, how to treat his mother, his sister, whoever he's with. And then he is going to continue that cycle because he's going to look at his dad as the role model who's supposed to be teaching him the ways of the world. And he's going to say, that's how I need to treat a woman. And that's how and why the cycle continues. So if you're not at that point yet where you feel like you're not worth it, your children are. And let's do this together. I am not a psychiatrist or psychologist, as I told you prior to recording. I feel comfortable in saying I have a doctorate in the hard life. I do have a paralegal degree. I help write up the documents that are necessary. One thing I would suggest, I can't provide legal assistance. I can tell you what I would do. I would do a medical POA, which I did. So when I was in the hospital, he couldn't make the decisions if I was unconscious. So like a best friend or somebody like that, because the first person they're going to go to is your spouse. So I had one of those and it's in the medical record. He or she, whoever is the attacker or abuser, won't know until it came down to that decision making time. And the hospital would say, sorry, it's not you. We have to talk to this person. That's, you know, that's not something I guess if you're if you're living with that fear, you might know. But I would have never thought of that. That's. That's really an important little bit yeah, yes. to give. Yeah. Or if someone you love is with somebody who is questionable, that's important. Yes, it's a lifesaver. It really yeah. truly is. It is. Also, another thing I suggest is that you do a medical power of consent for a minor. You can do a waiver of consent. These are all things that are offered on my website where if something happens, God forbid, and you're in the hospital and you're unable, that whoever you want, your parents, friend, sister, brother, relative of any sort, you're giving them temporary custody while you're in in the hospital so that the dad or whoever it is won't have them alone. Because Mm -hmm. if he's hitting or she's hitting you, eventually it's going to go to the kids. It is. So take them out of the environment. I also stress the point that if the children see an abusive situation start to come arise that you tell the children to go into a safe place far away from that situation itself, go into a safe place. Do not come and try and look for you. Just stay where they are until you come to them because that way they're not in the equation. And then I tell the woman, because that's honestly who I work with the most are women, you know, and I get it. I'm not taking away from them for a minute, but then I tell the women that they need to try if at all possible to move this incident to a place that isn't around like a kitchen where there's knives and things of that nature. Try to go into a corner, not a corner of a room where you're stuck and he's got you cornered into a room, but like a corner of the house where, you know, there's no stairs. So he can't throw you down. There is nothing in the way. So you don't trip on the way there. Nothing that he can pick up and throw at you. So maybe in the middle of the room, but in the corner of the house, but on the opposite end of wherever you have your kids. Have your kids well-trained to call 911, depending on the age of the child. Have them go to a neighbor's house and have them call the police. 
but just stay away from mommy or daddy until this calms down for their own safety and protection. I teach them or offer them life classes to help them get back on their feet again, to show them how they can come back into the world because they have literally just been trained in their own way how to accept this negative, how to accept this abuse. And they're worth so much more. Even their kids know that that parent is worth so much more. And your children don't deserve that parent. They deserve the parent who you know you are inside. And we're going to bring that light back out. Victoria, what do you, did you have someone or some organization or something that helped you move past, you know, the being the victim to getting out of there and being the advocate? No, I did this by myself. I had no one who was um, isolated from everyone. My call to help was my ex, the police officer, and he went to court with me. Mm-hmm. And that was incredibly interesting since there was already such hatred there as it was. He was my best friend. He stood with me, uh, took me to the side around the corner and said, do not let him see you this way. And he knew me as that strong, confident corporate person. And now I'm like, you know, when I heard a noise and I, and I wouldn't look anybody in the eye and I was like, don't touch me, you know, and I would just be very timid, very shy, very afraid very dressing from my ankle to my wrist, covering everything because I'm humiliated by who I am. And he looked over at me and he said, if you need to break down, do it after. Don't you let him see you this way. And I went in there and went to court. And then I, did, I mean, I realized that I didn't have anyone. I have put myself in therapy and that is a must. People do need to go into therapy because you can have a fantastic circle of people who get it but you need to have a professional. And I started seeing my therapist, I guess, 12 years ago. And we're still mm-hmm. as good as it gets. She's retired, but we're friends now. And she's amazing. And I just, I felt like I couldn't do this by myself. I didn't know, people don't know the protocol for how do you get a TPO? How do you get a restraining order? How do you, or what documents do you need to get it? And then what does it do for you? things of that nature. So I finally was convinced to publish my memoir, which was never supposed to be published. And now I'm almost done. I'm almost finished. I've created a guidebook, if you will, that goes through every single step of the way where you can go and turn and say, how do you get a TPO? Well, there it is. Every single step you have to do. How do you get a restraining order? Here's every single step. Mm -hmm. So I'm working on that now. On the website, There is a moving company in all 50 states that will move the victim for free. I have that up there. I have the coalition up there. I have a lot of resources up there. Okay. I have the website designed, if you you look at it, where it says a contagious smile, but when you first go on it, it looks like it's about kids Mm -hmm. and they're, you know, so rambunctious and beautiful. And if your abuser comes in, he's not going to see the domestic side of it. And they do check your social history. They do check all of that. None of my URLs come up as any kind of domestic violence. They all show up as something like, you know, life skill classes for special needs or Mm -hmm. things of that nature. So it it really does protect the individual we're trying to help. Wow. And there's something else I wouldn't have thought of, but yeah. So you're- It's only because I went through it and I wouldn't want anyone. Behind the scenes there, making things work for everyone. 
So we will definitely link your website in the comments and that's a contagious smile.com. Is that yes, right? Yes, okay. yes, and tell us a little bit, this has been really enlightening. Tell us a little bit about how your daughter's doing and what you do to help parents with special needs kids, because I think that was your first advocacy adventure. Yes, it was, and, and um, I, I love it. I love advocating in general, but that's just, these kids, CJ, have just the most amazing disposition and outlook on life. Even the ones that know they're not going to be here, you know, for long, they cherish every single moment. I help the parents find the waivers they need, the therapies they need, the services they need. If they're going to the hospital, you know, I try and arrange for things of fun for not only the patients, but the siblings as well. My daughter at a very young age wanted to put on a fundraiser and help kids like herself. So we have, and we've done it every year. We raise between 250 and 400 toys, brand new unwrapped. We go to the chronic facilities. As we all know, everybody takes care of hospitals. So we go to the chronic facilities and she gives them out to every single patient. And then she also gives them to the brothers and sisters on behalf of the patient. And, so, and she actually takes the fault. She says, well, I forgot to put the tag on it. So you have to forgive me because I have some forgetful issues because of my special needs. And so you have to come pick out a gift, but it's from whoever the patient may be. And so she does that, but she never wants anything for herself. This is her, she's like, this is the best gift I can ever have. She has been featured on television and radio. She was a finalist with the Children's Miracle Network. She is thriving. Everything they said she wouldn't do, she has absolutely overcome. She is the light of my life. Like she absolutely is the most amazing human being I've ever met. She comes in a room and she lights it up and the hospital actually you know, the care facility, because they've known her forever as we've had the same team forever. We'll have her talk to other kids pre-COVID and let them know what's going on. And she totally will go in and talk to them. I was coming out from having one of my pre-ops for one of my surgeries. And we had a gentleman who, if I'm guessing, was probably in his 70s and he had a trait. And she looked at him and, hi. And he looked and said, hi. You know, he waved and he had a whiteboard where he was writing it. She said, how long have you had it? And he looked and said, he wrote like three months. And she said, how long do you have to keep it? And he wrote like three more months. And she goes, cool, because when they get rid of it, it'll look like this. And she pointed to her scar on her neck. And she's like, it's really cool that you're wearing a really cool necklace because a lot of people can't have those necklaces. And it's part of the cool club. So you're in, you're a lifetime member of the cool club. And he wrote down, he goes, how can I feel sorry for myself? And she's just that way. I mean, and it's so amazing. I'm so in awe of her. She, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Have a good day. And they're like, you've been raised so well. She's like, I have a good mom. And I'm like, this is the greatest honor I have is being her mom because I'm in awe of her every day and what she's accomplishing and what she's doing. So let's back up a minute because I know we kind of brushed past, you know, her when you were hospitalized, having her early. To now, you guys, I mean, from what you told me before, I think you both are miracles that nobody expected to survive that incident where you ended up having her, I assume it was emergency delivery or it was, you know, when she, when you had her early, the two of you 
I am sure to the doctors didn't seem like you would make it out of the hospital, let alone here you are almost 16 years later. So I just want to highlight that, you know, not only did you get through and away from your abuser, but I think that, you know, from what you've what I've seen or heard from you today, there's been a progression of operations, I think. A lot of checkups and medical procedures and a lot of a lot of defeating the odds and persistence. Yes. Am I reading that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Incredible. It was our faith without question that kept us here. No question. And yeah, that I, I mean, it's just incredible what you've come through and overcome. But now you and your daughter both, it sounds like, are delivering hope for others who may need it. What an incredible legacy you've taught her to, to share. Is there anything that we haven't touched on you want people to know or to remember? And we will, again, we'll link your website for some resources. Thank you. We have a Facebook group too. It's a contagious smile support. You have to bear with me because I vet you through to make sure you are who you say you are because I'm very protective of everyone coming in because you become family. Well, and I assume that the different Facebook groups you can find going to the website. Yes. We will. Okay. So, because there's, you got a lot going on there and a lot of resources. So we will direct people there. And so thank you. This has been tremendous. And I appreciate everyone tuning in today. Please share this with a friend. I think there's a lot of great tips and resources that more people need to know about. And make make it an amazing day. Thanks again. If you're like most women, you have a big dream on your heart and really want to make a positive impact in the lives of others. But self-doubt, fear, or other limiting beliefs often get in your way. What many women don't realize is that the one thing that can catapult them forward is deepening their self-love and self-esteem. So I have a free ebook for you that's really going to help you in this area. It's called 30 Days to Deepen Self-Love, and you can download it at the link in our show notes. Enjoy.